The second time I traveled to Burkina Faso in West Africa, I went to train pastors. And we got to the, the school room or the, you know, four walls and a roof. And they had me uh, sit down. And I knew this was coming, but it was a little bit of a shock to me because they had me sit down in the front of everyone in this chair. And it wasn't really a chair, it was more of a throne, right? And there are assemblies of God over there. And so I sat there and I felt awful, but I, uh, before I sat down, I, I kind of pressed against it. I said, I don't want to do that. You know, it's okay. And the reason was, was because what seemed good to me was to act in a feeling of equality and mutual love and respect. And I looked at these men sitting five men to a bench in front of me. And I thought, you know, for me to sit in this throne and them to sit there, that's not good. Uh, But to them, pushing against that, I was directly insulting their desire to be hospitable to me. You see, our understandings of what was good were opposed. Every culture, every country, every kingdom has an idea of what is good. And in many cases, that will differ with another culture, another country, or another kingdom. Any of you that have traveled outside the United States know this well. This understanding of what is good could be thought of as an order given in a given country, in a given kingdom, the order by which that society, that group, that community flourishes. And it is more than just laws. This order is a structure, a structure of beliefs centered on what is good that exists outside of any one of its citizens. When you think about uh, what this is talking about is this fact, you can write this down, every kingdom's system of keeping order, has at its core an understanding of what is good. Every kingdom's system of keeping order has at its core an understanding of what is good. If we can lock this in, we can start to understand people and their drives better, right? Uh, A great example is uh, terrorists. We look at terrorists and we go, what they're doing is evil. And by Judeo-Christian standards and by what we would say is logic, it is absolutely evil. Do you really think, though, that they woke up in the morning going to commit atrocities, saying to themselves, let's go do something bad? We'd like to paint it that way. It's easier for us to think about it that way. But the reality is, is they woke up that morning saying, let's go do what is good to our system of beliefs. And that's really hard to understand that. But if we get this, we, we can understand ourselves a little bit better. Did you know that the kingdom of God operates much in the same way? There is an order to it. To paint the context of what Paul is writing in our text in Ephesians 2 today, we have to understand this truth. And to help you understand, I want to go all the way back to the beginning and back even further than Genesis. You guys are used to me taking you to Genesis to kind of paint the picture because that's what the Bible does. But I want to go back to the true beginning. I want to go back to John 1 that Courtney read earlier. If you're in John there, read with me John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you scan down the page and you look at verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word, Word, (laughs) there's no other way to say that, is a a word in the Greek that is this, logos. Everybody say logos. Logos. We have a tendency in the English to pronounce it logo, like the Nike logo, but it's logos, okay? Say it again with me, logos. Logos. Okay, it's the word, word. It's translated into English, word. 
Now we know that this is referring to Jesus because of verse 14, which says that the word, the logos, became flesh. He incarnated, he stepped into flesh. But because of our distance culturally, uh, our distance of time and language from the original author and audience, we miss something very, very important when we simply translate it into word. In the first century, a Jew that had adopted Greek and Roman culture, known as a Hellenized Jew, would understand the logos far different than just the word. This was a term that was used throughout Greek philosophy and theology. Now, some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. We're going into philosophy today? Just bear with me, okay? The logos was the intelligible order of things. It was God's transcendent rationality that gave the created universe order and purpose. That's the logos. And that is why John 1.10, if you look there, John 1.10 says, he was in the world and the world was made through him. There's this weird thing. We think Jesus, yes, creator, yeah, he's the one that was actually working. He's like Yahweh, we get that. But he was the outward reflection, the life he lived, the person he was. He was the reflection of that transcendent rationality that gives the created universe order. The logos is the logic of things. In fact, that's where we get the root, the root of the word logic is logos. It is the logic of how things function. If I've totally lost you, let me explain it a different way. Everybody look at the screen and tell me the answer to this formula. Okay, some of you need to go back and do your math. Okay, two plus two is four. Why? Why? Okay, now let's, let's try this. Okay, you got that one. How about this one? Some of you, this is going to take you a little bit longer. Blue plus yellow is? Oh, good job. All right, there you go. Green. Okay, why? Why? Now, some people might say, well, it's, you know, language structures and all that, but how did you know the answer to these? Don't they vary depending upon who you are? Well, if you're colorblind, maybe, right? But the reality is, is they don't actually depend on who you are. They are just the way things are. They are based on an underlying order, a form, and a coherence of how things work in the created domain. Why can't up be down and down be up? Because they just can't. There is a logic and a rationality about it that does not change. This is the idea of the logos. Everybody say logos. The readers of John's gospel in the first century would also understand that the Logos was above mankind, distant from mankind, transcendent, and guiding us from afar. And this is why John 1.14 to them would have been like, oh yeah, that's Jesus. No, it would have blown their minds that the Logos, the underlying order, this logic could take human form and walk around amongst us. They would have gone, what? Wait a minute. Hold on a second. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us? They would have read in verse 1 and thought, yep, gotcha, God, he has no form. He is the very logic. Logic comes out of his order. Love comes out of who he is. But then verse 14, they would have been thrown for a loop that this underlying wisdom entered into the very system it created in bodily form. Jesus is the embodiment of the perfect, good God. And the created order all fused into one. Jesus is the life lived based on what is good and right. 
At the core of the divine logic upon which the created order depends is a truth that is laid out in Genesis 1, and that is that God is good. He created something, it's good. He ordered everything perfectly. In fact, you can look at Genesis 1-2, and what does it say? It says this is what God was working with. Without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. In Hebrew, that without form and void means totally chaotic, empty, in a, in a sense, worthless. And what God did in that entire chapter, the beginning of the story, is he took everything that he had made, and behold, what was it, guys? It was very good. Not just good, it was very good. God took what was unordered, and he made it ordered. Now, all of you who are type B personalities are feeling tons of shame right now, right? You're like, order's good? That's godly? Oh, no, right? Now, it's not type A, type B. It's taking chaos and making it orderly. It's taking what was meant to be against God and turning it for good. You can see the uh, bookends of the book of Genesis because this is chapter one. And then at the end of the story, Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God has taken and turned for You have the whole story of Genesis, good versus evil, tov versus ra in the Hebrew. Mankind was part of this order, created to steward this good creation and look to God to define what is the logos. We're not supposed to make it up on our own. We're supposed to look to the logos for the logos, to look to his word about what is right and good. If you understand this, you get Genesis 1, 2, and 3 so much more so. They were to live a life ordered by the Logos, the logic and wisdom of God, and in so doing, point all of creation back to the fact that God is what? Good. And more importantly, he is the one that defines what is good. This was the kingdom that God had originally created, one based upon the Logos of what was good, his very character and being. And all we had to do as humanity was to let God be God, And to be his created order. To follow his lead in what was good and evil. And the kingdom would have existed in perfect shalom for eternity future. With this in mind, turn to Genesis with me. Genesis 2.15. And let's take a look here at what happened. Genesis 2.15 through 18. It says, The Lord, and those are in caps, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And if you look at this and you see what's going on, he then says in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God is doing good work and creating good order, and he gave his creation literally everything they could ever want. He even gave them a diversity of options from which to eat. Now, we that are parents of small children, we understand how this goes, right? Let's see. In the fridge today for lunch, we have mac and cheese. Uh, We have filet mignon from last night. We have everything you possibly want. And what does your child ask for? The thing that isn't in there, right? right? I want a whatever, you know, French toast from Paris. What? Right? This is the human nature. It's original sin. If you want to figure out original sin, just look at your children, right? (laughs) And so what did God do? He went, guys, look at this. You have every tree. You have oranges and you have passion fruit and you have guava and you have pineapple and you have coconuts and you have everything. Just this one over here, this weed, 
that showed up in the garden, don't eat that. (laughs) Everything else, go ahead, right? And mankind, what do we do with it? Well, we go and eat the one thing we're not supposed to. And look at 2.9, just a little bit before that. It says, And out of the ground Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. So who created all the good trees? God did. as provision for us. And then it says the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And we know that's good, so God created that one. And it randomly says the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That doesn't mean God created it. We have no idea why it's there, how it got there. If God created everything that was good for food and he said, don't eat of that, we can understand he didn't put it there. It was just there. Did Satan put it there? We don't know. But even with all this choice, look at how it played out. Look at Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty. And remember that the serpent in Hebrew literature means the chaos monster. It is absolutely Satan, the original liar, the original accuser. Uh, the opponent of God, but serpent is used here very much so as a statement of the chaos monster trying to bring chaos into God's good order. And he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he's questioning God's goodness there. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She added in there, God never said don't touch it. He just said don't eat it. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And what is the definition of being like God? Being able to define good and evil. Knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What Satan did is he doubted God's goodness. We just spent two chapters figuring out how good God is and Satan comes in and says, "Ah, hold on there. He inserted a seed of doubt into Eve's mind. He inserted a lie that God was manipulative and that he was trying to keep mankind from being able to define good and evil themselves. But guys, this is ludicrous. God is the Logos. Think about how ludicrous that is. God is the inventor of the game. Right? It would be like sitting down with the person who invented Monopoly and telling them that they didn't make the rules right. But this is actually how you play. No, it's ludicrous. God is the logos. He's the good. He didn't just define what is good. He is the good. And all of creation is the outpouring of his goodness. And therefore, the good cannot change depending on personal opinion, no matter how much we try and redefine common terms. But look at what Eve does with this. She takes it and she starts to dwell on it. And she sees with her senses, with her feelings, with her understanding, what is good. No longer is she under the authority of God. She had now broken the created order and she was defining for herself what was good based on her own feelings, her own logic, not the logic of God. Guys, to operate in sin is when I am operating by the law of my feelings over and above the word of God and the Holy Spirit that dwells within his church. My feelings, my desires, my senses, and not the logos. 
Proverbs says this. This was given to me at an early age when I didn't know much of the Bible and it has been so concreted in my brain because of my own choices in life. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You see, I make all sorts of decisions by myself based on my own feelings that can easily end in death and destruction for me and my family. Slowly but surely, I've learned that I need other people to point me to the Logos. And this missing the mark, that's missing the mark of what God intended. It's missing the mark of the Logos. And in stepping away from the authority of the Logos, the good order and the rule of Yahweh God, mankind stepped into the way of the first rebel against God's order, the adversary himself, who was the first to define for himself what good was outside of God's word. And he began operating off of the law and rule of a different kingdom and king, and we followed him right into that. And this is that kingdom of darkness we talked about. We covered this in depth last week when we talked about Paul's announcement of the kingdom of darkness. And last week I finished with this statement. We were saved to be citizens of a different kingdom. Why did we have to be saved? Well, guys, think about this for a second. If God put the Logos in place and it was good and is good, then for him to be just and good, he will have to bring all creation back into that order at some point. Everybody wants to say, is God good? Yeah, he is. And for him to be good, he has to bring everything back to the good. And when he does, the only way that can happen is for the destruction of the kingdom that defines good otherwise. And if anyone is part of that kingdom, they too will be destroyed. Guys, this is not mean. This is right, good, and just. If God is good, that will be his process. Why this is also important to understand is that we can then understand why simply attempting to do better or to be good would not rescue us from this kingdom. Innately, the problem is that we have refused the logos. And even if we do parts of it that are indeed good, it is akin to the old adage of putting makeup on a pig. We sit in one kingdom in rebellion against the other and we try and make ourselves better. We can try to do good works, but we're doing those good works within the kingdom of darkness. In other words, we put on the nicest clothes possible and yet we go roll around in the mud. And this was what happened to the Israelites. They had the law of God in a sense, in a sense the logos, but they were still citizens within the kingdom of rebellion. And so they put on nice new clothes but stayed in the mud pit. God had to rescue us out of, his king, out of this kingdom and into his own. He had to pull us out and recreate us as new to exist within the new kingdom, the kingdom of light. And he didn't just reform us in the old to be nicer and kinder. A good pastor friend of mine uh, wrote an article that was on the Gospel Coalition, and he said, to be a Christian is to be new, not just nice. Most of us are taught that to be a Christian is to become nice, but that's not the only piece. There is kindness, yes, but it's to become new. And this is why Paul could write in Colossians 1.13, He, Jesus, God, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now you see why I equate salvation with a movement of kingdoms, not just me getting to heaven when I die. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. You'll notice you don't get redemption or forgiveness of sins if you are not transferred into that kingdom. Think about that for a second. That's why I always think that if we're talking about Jesus as Savior, we have to be talking about him as king as well. Because if we only talk about forgiveness and we never talk about being transferred into the kingdom, then we might still be playing with mud pies in the wrong kingdom. And so we see within the letter of the Ephesians, to the Ephesians, the same understanding. If we were to use summary statements and kind of diagram out the understanding of what we have read over the last few months in Ephesians, it would look like this. The first thing in the the, uh, first chapter is that we have thankfulness for God's actions in Christ. Everything that Paul's talking about is flowing out of thankfulness that God is so amazing that he has sent his son to do all this work. And as a sub-idea of that, the work was that Jesus was resurrected and enthroned. Remember, name above names, right? Stepping on the neck of his enemy. Remember all that that we've talked about? Jesus was resurrected and enthroned. And in this, as a subsection of this, we talked about the fact that he's given all authority. And the primary idea that Paul paints is that he's the head of a new humanity known as the church. He's given as the head of the church, which is the citizenry of his kingdom. And then he digresses slightly and says, and those of you that are that new humanity, you were previously in the kingdom of darkness. But then he gives us the amazing, great news of the gospel. He says, you were following Satan and living by the order of his desires and your own, but then God saved us. Amen? God saved us because he was rich in mercy, it says in Ephesians. He was rich in mercy. That idea of mercy in the New Testament is akin to the word that I taught you in Isaiah, chesed, okay? Everybody say chesed. It's nice to have the little, you know, the little phlegm thing at the beginning there. Chesed, right? It helps us remember that word. That word means the faithfulness that comes from God's undying love for us, okay? His steadfast covenant faithfulness. That's what chesed means. Steadfast covenant faithfulness. God is steadfastly faithful to the covenant, the new covenant that he has with his people. And so when he says says that he saved us, what does he mean here? There's three things that he talks about in Ephesians. And we'll get there in just a second and go into this in depth. The first thing is that he took us from death to life, from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, resurrected with Christ, made us alive together with Christ. The second thing it says is that he raised us up resurrected us just like Jesus, and then that he seated us with Christ in heavenly places. Now this is so bizarre to us because we're like, I don't think I died and then was resurrected. Well, that's because we don't understand how dead we were. I don't really know if I've been brought from death to life. Well, you would if you were saved. I can tell you that. And third, well, I'm seated on these really uncomfortable chairs. I hope heaven has better chairs than these. True, I do too. But seated us with Christ in heavenly places is more an idea of placement in kingdom than it is of geography. Let me read to you what the author of Hebrews says in this very odd section that a lot of people have trouble with, but it's the exact same idea. This is Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. He says to the Hebrew church in that letter, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn. That word assembly there in the Greek is actually the word ekklesia, which is translated elsewhere as church, to the church of the firstborn, who is Jesus, who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Part of the reason I'm, I'm nerdy and I'm excited about having a role of members in our church is because it's practice for heaven. We're enrolled in heaven as Christians. And so the reality is, is that this odd statement, I don't really feel like I've been enrolled, but it's kind of like the first time I had to enroll in high school. I had to go and I had to register and enroll and I still wasn't in high school, but I was waiting for that day. That's what it's talking about here. One commentator puts it this way. To be saved describes a rescue from death, wrath, and bondage, and a transfer into the new dominion with its manifold blessings. So we captured this idea with this graphic last week, that we move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But we must remember that even though we can't see it or feel it fully right now, that is because we are in this odd time, kind of where that arrow is. We're in this gap period, the age of overlap, I called it in Isaiah, where we are part of the kingdom but exist physically within this world. And so this is what Christ meant when he said that his people were to be not of the world. When asked in Luke 17 when the kingdom would fully come, this was Jesus' response. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so this idea of kingdom was already among them because a kingdom is a king reigning over a people, Jesus reigning over the citizens of his church. Okay, with all that thought in mind, let's go to Ephesians 2. And we're going to go over verses 4 through 7, which we've already covered a bit. And then we'll step into breaking down verses 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Patrick already read it for us. But God, being rich in mercy, his chesed, his covenant faithfulness, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We read this and we come full circle. God saved us through Christ. In verse 7, why? Why did he do this? So that, for the purpose of, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let me put the dots together for you between Ephesians and John here. By acting in his chesed, in his salvation, in his covenant faithfulness, his mercy and grace, God is speaking to all of the cosmos the truth that he is the creator, the logos, and the good. And so by salvation of his people, the church, he is speaking directly and clearly to the principalities and powers, the leaders over the kingdom of darkness, telling them that they are wrong and that their lie is truly a lie. He is undoing the lie of Satan to Eve that he can't be trusted. He's undoing the lie that he's manipulative and not good. 
What the gospel proves is that indeed our God can be trusted because of his great mercy and love that has brought us salvation. So often I meet with people in counseling sessions where in their circumstance, in their moment, they say, I don't know if God is good. Have you ever thought that before? I know I have. And in that moment, I always have to go back to the culmination of his plan, that God is good. Because of his mercy and his grace with which he loved us, he has saved us. He is the Logos. He is the good. And now we're ready to read three of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. See them with me here in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now let's unpack this in the time that we have left. The first thing that I want you to notice is this statement in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. First, write this down. Salvation is a free gift from God that cannot be earned by our works. Salvation is a free gift from God that cannot be earned by our works. Paul stated in verse 7 that God will proclaim and illustrate his grace and kindness for all ages to come. He will show that he is good. Well, how will he do this? How so? God, you're going to show us your good? How? And that's where we look to the next word in verse 8. For. This word in the English can be understood as a because statement. Let me read it to you without the period, without the punctuation, to help you get what I'm saying here. Okay? I'm going to start with verse 7, and I'm going to kind of twist it a little bit so that you can understand it. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, because by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You take that period out of there, and all of a sudden you understand. The whole reason he's doing everything is to prove to the cosmos that he is indeed good. And how is he going to do that? Through salvation. He's going to show his goodness and graciousness through the fact that salvation is 100% a gift that cannot be earned. Now to help you understand this verse, I'm going to pause for a second and kind of undo what I fear may have been taught to many of you that this verse is to mean. Often we have defined grace as unconditional love. And we define faith as a mental assent or belief, even though we can't see him. So just bear with me as I reframe this verse with those definitions. God unconditionally loves me because I believe, even though I can't see him, that he is God and Savior. That's generally what most people believe this verse to mean. No one's ever stated that to me explicitly, but when you sit and talk with someone about what they believe, this is what they believe. God unconditionally loves me because I believe. And the emphasis is on our belief and our faith. But that's not at all what this verse is saying. Let me define each piece of it for you. First, 
Grace. Grace is what we talked about the last few weeks, that it's his contra-conditional love. There is no reason that he should love us. And so it is God's unmerited, unearned favor in spite of the fact that we don't meet the conditions for a loving relationship. Unmerited, unearned favor. While I was yet a sinner, an enemy of Yahweh God, he sent his son to die for me. The father sent his son to die in my place and yours to pay the penalty for our sins. That's grace. That's grace. And this gift of Jesus by the plan of the Father is what saved us from sin and death and wrath and transferred us out of the domain of darkness and into the domain of light. But then it says, through faith. Now, unfortunately, this Greek phrase is a bit ambiguous. So just bear with me for a second in my nerdiness, my geekiness, right? You guys love that I'm a geek, right? Yeah? Okay. Just don't say no if, you're, if you really don't like it because I'm going to do it anyway. I think this is possibly one of the most important things for a Christian to grasp. This word, this phrase uh, in the Greek is this. It's dia pistuos. And it's through or by way of faith. But the word faith here is a very odd word. And Greek is a tough language for us to get. That's why people will say it's all Greek to me. Right? It's a tough language. Okay? The case ending of that word pistuos, just follow with me here. It's an omega and a sigma. What it does is it tells us that it is a case called a genitive case, which means it's possessed. Someone holds it. It's someone's faith. Okay? You got that? It would be like an apostrophe S. And so another way of writing it that makes sense in the English would be through one's faith. You got me so far? Now, why this matters is because of what the very next phrase says. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God. Now, if we are the ones that possess faith, and it is our faith that does the saving, wouldn't it be odd for Paul to say, and this was nothing of you but all God? Let me say that again, because I think some of you haven't quite connected it yet. If we are the ones that possess the faith... And it is our faith that does the saving. Wouldn't it be odd for Paul to say, and this was nothing of you but all God? If we read the faith as being ours, wouldn't we be able to boast in our own faith? Thank you. Would our mental assent in and of itself, our prayer of belief, wouldn't it become a work that gains salvation? Here's the other option for this phrase. That the word pistuos here actually is referring to Christ's faithfulness. Remember how I taught you in Isaiah that the word pistis, the word faith, can also be translated as faithful or faithfulness, allegiance. And so the actuality, and this is a massive uh, argument within theological circles. Most of us probably don't pay attention to those nerdy circles like I do, but there is an argument. And so the other word here, or the other meaning of this, could mean that we are saved by God's gift of unmerited, unearned favor by way of Christ's pistuos, which is also used as faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness. 
I'm going to take a huge liberty here, and I may get drug out in front of the firing squad for this, but I'm going to restate this verse in a different way to help you get what I think it means. For by God's unmerited, unearned favor, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by way of Christ's faithfulness. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast about their part in their own salvation. Let me reread that. For by God's unmerited, unearned favor, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by way of Christ's faithfulness. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast about their part in their own salvation. Now, I am taking a lot of liberties here. But I think that this helps us understand what Paul is saying. We played and currently play no part whatsoever in God's salvation because he alone is good. This is the good news, folks. God alone is good. There is no good in us. And yet, in his goodness and faithfulness, he reached in and pulled us out of the kingdom in rebellion against him and placed us in the kingdom ruled by his good order, his logos, all because of his great love that I don't deserve and... Honestly, I don't think you do either. We can only boast in him and his faithfulness to us while we were yet faithless. Dear brothers and sisters, this is why I push back so hard on people who want to be assured that their faith is strong enough to be saved. For me to do so would be against this understanding. What I can say to you is that at any point in your life, if you are looking to yourself, your worth, your actions, your belief, your faith to be an assurance that you are saved, then I can say you need to reread this, this verse. Because if you want to understand the good news of the Bible, you will understand that what you can trust in is God's goodness. You can trust in his grace. You can trust in his mercy. You can be assured that God is good. The question is, have you trusted in his goodness? And have you understood that trusting in his goodness and following him, what it actually means? And this is where we tie everything together because many times verses 8 and 9 are taught, eight and nine are taught by themselves without reference to the context. But for us to understand 8 and 9, we cannot separate it from the context of any of the rest of this letter, letter especially 2.10. But I want to pause here for a second because my guess is, is that some of you right now are wrestling with, but what part do I play? What about my faith? And I would speak to you that that right there is proof that you have not yet understood the fullness of God's grace. It is all him. He is good. Because if we understand that, then we have no problem reconciling 8 and 9 with 10. Because here's what 10 basically means. You can write this down. Good works are not a way to salvation. They are the life we live because of salvation. Good works are not a way to salvation. They are the life we live because of salvation. Let me read verses 8 through 10 again for you. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is not unbelievable to me that many pastors teach only 8 and 9 and kind of skip through 10. Doesn't it seem odd that Paul very vehemently says that salvation is not the result of good works, but then states clearly that those who are saved will absolutely walk in good works? And so if you're anything like me, you go, okay, which was first, the egg or the chicken? If I do good works, then what if I'm trying to earn my salvation? But if I don't do good works, then was I ever saved first? I'm confused. Anybody else ever feel like that? But I think our confusion on this stems from the very bad theology that has set up a false dilemma that for grace to be good, works should never be focused upon as part of the Christian life. It's as if faith is, if I do nothing for God and I believe he will still save me, then I have faith. It's as if faith is, I'll repeat this again, if I do nothing for God and show myself to be totally unworthy of his love, then I still believe, then I'll know I have true faith. But unfortunately, this is not even in the same universe of thought as what Paul was stating. Even stating that works or the proper response to God's grace makes it seem as though there is this account of debt that we are trying to work off or pay off. And this is also incorrect. What Paul was saying was something far more grand than either of those options. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to the idea with me in your minds of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Logos. In other words, before even the kingdom of darkness existed, there was one kingdom. And in that kingdom, it existed under the order of the Logos. Well, even though there were not yet any created inhabitants in that kingdom, if one were to step into that kingdom, was to live within the order of the Logos. It's like when two people get married and start building a family. There are no children yet, but both the mom and the dad bring in an underlying expectation for the order of the family or what the home will be. It's existent before there are any people relying upon it. Before there were created citizens of the kingdom, the Logos, the underlying good order of how the kingdom functioned still existed. It was in place. And so when we were transferred into the kingdom, the good works of life within the order of the kingdom, they already existed. We were saved to go walk in them. In other words, when we were saved, there was nothing we did, but God recreated us. He gave us new birth into a new way of life that has existed since before creation, that we might walk in a way that reflects God as king. Having trusted God, those in the kingdom are now to walk in what is good and patterned after God's order, literally to walk in good works. Again, it's like the example of if I grew up in Great Britain and I drove on the left side of the road, I'm going to come over to America and maybe I get my citizenship and I start driving around. Is it going to be kind of tough for me to drive on the right side of the road? Yeah, I'm probably going to find myself over in the, oh, you know, I'm going to be over on the left sometimes. But see, that system was created for me to drive in and to drive against it is going to be really bad. It's going to end badly. And so it might struggle, I might struggle at first to get into that system, that order, but I'm eventually going to step into it. 
It's the same thing for us as Christians. In other words, God wants us to walk in good works. And so a church that is healthy, meaning that it is full of citizens that are actually following Jesus, is going to be attempting to operate by the logos. A church that is healthy will be motivated by the gospel, that they have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light, and they will live by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the order of the logos. In other words, that church will be logos followers, followers of the word, Jesus followers. And a healthy church will have a leadership that encourages its people toward the logos at all times. And when they see people that are not operating according to the logos, they will step in to lovingly exhort and rebuke. Look with me at the job description that Paul gave Titus, a pastor and elder in the church at Crete. Turn to Titus. It's over to the right. Okay, go through the T's, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then Titus. And we're going to be in Titus 2. And you're going to see the job description of a pastor and the job description of the leaders of a church. And what I want you to do as we read this is I want you to compare what we used to be and how we used to operate to where we're trying to operate. And I want you to ask yourself, is the leadership of this church attempting to be obedient to the word of God? Okay? Chapter 2, verse 11. And you'll also notice in the midst of this how much this sounds like Ephesians because Paul wrote both of them. Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In the what age? The age to come, right? Because, you know, we can never be perfect. We're always going to be sinners, so we're just going to sin. It's not what he says. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? Everybody say it out loud there. You guys are so legalistic. (laughs) And what's the job of the leaders? Declare these things. Exhort, which means to encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Can you imagine a pastor today getting up on a stage and saying, listen to me, guys, don't disregard me. He would be on the blogosphere as the biggest jerk to walk the face of the earth. Pastors are supposed to be kind and nice and encouraging. No, they're supposed to get you to walk according to the logos. Look at chapter 3. The reason that we do these things, the reason we exhort and, and rebuke and try to get you so that you don't disregard us is because, everybody look up at me first. We love you. We want to help you walk according to the Logos. Now look back at chapter 3, verse 1. What does he tell Titus to do? Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, 
to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. Okay, that's what, at the same time you exhort and you rebuke, you got to be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Doesn't this sound like Ephesians, the beginning of two, right? We read last week. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Sound like Ephesians here? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to do what? To devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. It's a good thing Paul didn't write a church planting manual. I don't know that it would have sold. Right? But this is pretty heavy. Good works are not specific things or checkboxes that God has for us to accomplish. It is living a life marked by the laws of love, righteousness, justice, and pursuing and bringing God's divine order wherever we go. It is living a life like Jesus. And so the test that I called you to at the end of last week's sermon to evaluate your relationships, your time, your talents, and treasure is simply to help you take stock of whether or not you are sitting in the kingdom of darkness or whether you are living life according to the Logos under the authority of your gracious King and Savior Jesus. Let me put it to you this way, guys. If you wake up one morning and you're all of a sudden paying things in pounds— and you're driving on the left side of the road, and you're eating fish and chips everywhere you go, and you're talking with a British accent, where do you know you're most likely living? Britain. If you wake up and you're paying in dollars, and you're driving on the right side of the road, and you're using an American, you know, version of English, right? Uh, And you are not eating fish and chips every day, right? You're eating fish and french fries, right? Where are you most likely living? The United States. I'm worried that some of you are waking up every morning eating fish and chips, driving on the left side of the road and speaking the British form of English and thinking you live in America. And so that's why we say, look at your works. Not to make you go, oh, am I earning enough salvation? You've missed it, if that's what you think I'm saying. We have to understand where we're at because if we're not operating by the logos, then we're in the other kingdom. And here's the deal. If I get up and I'm paying in dollars and I'm speaking in American version of English and I'm in Oregon and sometimes I slip over to the left side because it's just old habit, but then I'm immediately convicted and I go, I got to get back into the right. Is God sitting there going, you disobedient child? No. Is the American government saying, let's rebuke your citizenship? No, you'll probably get a ticket and then you pay that and you operate within that order and you're still a citizen. But if you sit there and you rebel against it constantly, then there's a problem. 
And this is why we have such a problem with obedience and disobedience. We think that good works are moral checkboxes that we have to list off and God is waiting for us to uncheck one of them so he can pounce on us and bring wrath to us. And that's not the situation at all. He saved us into his kingdom. We are his. We're not going anywhere. He won't lose us. The question is, is am I driving on the left side or the right side of the road? Am I paying in pounds or dollars? Am I operating in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light? And just to be clear, I'm not saying that Britain is the kingdom of darkness. Okay? I love Great Britain. Being saved does not mean that you stay exactly as you were before, maybe just a bit nicer, and that God has looked past your sin. To simply look past my sin would have been unjust. To die for it so that I might be rescued into new life was merciful and gracious. What salvation means is that you have been transferred into the kingdom of heaven and given the life of Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, you haven't been just given salvation or heaven. You've been given the life of Jesus. By his faithfulness in sacrificing himself on the cross as the payment for your rebellion and mine, we could then be moved into the kingdom of light, our sins being left in the past, and begin progressing slowly but surely in what, is to, what it is to live within the reign of Christ. He was the perfect logos in the flesh, and he calls us to try and emulate that. We can't do it without salvation, though. If you're a person that's sitting here today and you're going, I know which kingdom I'm in. I wake up every morning in the kingdom of darkness, and I want to be in that other kingdom then I would beg of you to come talk to me during the break. I'll pray with you. I'll talk to you about what it is to be transferred into the kingdom of light. And we can disciple you as a church. But today, for all of us in here, I have one point of application for you. I want every person in here today to take a step back, to breathe deeply of the grace of Jesus, and to look in awe at the fact that while you were living in blatant rebellion against your king, he reached out and rescued you. And the picture was not that you were treading water on your own, eventually worried you might drown, and a rescue boat came along to save you and you climbed in yourself. It was that you and I were dead and decaying at the bottom of the ocean, lifeless in our sin and rebellion. Jesus jumped in and took our place so that we might be transferred to dry land and reborn living life as he lived it. We are walking in the Logos. We are walking in the good works that are based upon the order of God's kingdom and his reign in our lives. We are living out the order of the kingdom just as Jesus called us to. You see, we were saved to live out the life of Christ with the hope that in so doing, those around us still perishing in sin might be drawn to his light just as we were.